Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, we'll be getting the view from Moscow on the latest US sanctions against Russia and how they are likely to affect relations between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. But first, the crisis in Venezuela, where on Sunday, voters elected members to a new constituent assembly, which President Nicolas Maduro says is necessary to restore stability in a country racked by division and protest. Opponents of the president say the assembly, which will write a new constitution for Venezuela, is a paragraph by Maduro, who is intent on replacing the country's democracy with a dictatorship. Tom Hennigan, our South American correspondent, joins me from Sao Paulo in Brazil. Uh, Tom, there have been significant developments in this story today with the arrest of opposition leaders. Well, this was um, kind of signalled by President Maduro yesterday. Uh, despite international condemnation, he said that the new assembly uh, was going to get to work straight away. And one of the first things he wanted it to do was to uh, lift parliamentary immunity um, for opposition politicians in the National Assembly, which has been the last real institutional torn in his side. And um, it would seem that that clampdown has uh, started um, already. And uh, this morning, I think the families of both Leopoldo Lopez, who was um, under house arrest, and uh, he, he's accused of, of um, inciting uh, violence and anti-government protests in 2014, and Antonio Ledesma, uh, who um, has been accused of, of, of trying to engineer a coup against Maduro, and they're both former uh, mayors of Caracas. Both of those were, were lifted this morning by security forces, according to their families. Yes, and uh, their lawyers now are trying to get in to meet them um, and see what the charges against them are. Um, uh, uh, Lopez has only recently been released from prison himself after uh, quite considerable pressure was put on Venezuela by neighbouring countries here in South America. But the the reality is is that the opposition have always claimed that Sunday's um, election to this new constitutional assembly was designed to get rid of the existing National Assembly, the, the legislature in in Venezuela, which the opposition took control of in late 2015 in midterm elections. And since then, there has been a major standoff between the administration of, of President Maduro and the National Assembly. Um, Mr. Maduro, as you said in your introduction, has always sort of um, said that the uh, new assembly would be a means of national reconciliation. The opposition have had um, no truck with that at all. They said really what it is about is giving the president the authority or uh, a fig leaf of authority to be allowed to dissolve the national assembly and therefore remove the last real institutional um, uh, focus of opposition to his regime. And then in that context, the opposition actually boycotted the vote on Sunday. So what actually happened on Sunday? What was the outcome of the vote for this new assembly? Well, that is is disputed. The the results show that all of the members elected are um, linked to the Chavismo movement of President Maduro. Um, that is not surprising because the opposition had boycotted it what is uh, disputed is the turnout. Electoral authorities said it was over 8 million people voted. The opposition say that's nonsense, that it was less than 3 million, which would uh, put the turnout very low. Uh, they're claiming turnout of around 12%. Um, even the 8 million that the electoral authorities say turned out um, and took part, that is only 40% of the population, which is very low by Venezuelan standards for ma- major elections. Um, and uh, regional media who had reporters in the country for the election 
uh, they report, you know, they reported that outside polling stations, both in the major cities and even in rural areas, which tend to be uh, more favorably disposed towards the regime, that there was uh, very little um, signs of um, popular mobilization to take part in the referendum. So already you have the opposition in Venezuela and regional governments all saying that they do not consider this new body as legitimate, even though it would seem from today's actions and his speech yesterday that the um, government of President Maduro is moving ahead to concentrate all legislative um, power in this new body, which essentially will mean that a, a total control over all the institutions of the state in Bolivia are now in, in, in sorry, in Venezuela, in the, in the Bolivian Bolivarian hands of uh, the movement of uh, President Maduro. And uh, there are 545 seats, I think, in uh, on this new assembly. Have they all been filled now, or is there further voting to take place before all the seats are filled? There, there are just a, there are just a few more seats that have to be filled, and um, that that have been put aside for individual communities, I think around eight seats. And uh, so uh, the various indigenous communities in Venezuela, they will hold their own um, election to fill those remaining seats. But essentially, uh, all, all the seats have been filled. All the main leaders of Chavismo are in this body, including Vice President um, uh, Caballero and Maduro's wife are in it. Uh, so all the leading lights of Chavismo are now in this new body. Uh, according to the legislation that allowed for this election, this now body is the the ultimate power-making uh, body in Venezuela, and it has no members of the opposition in it. And that is why you have um, many countries in the region saying that this really marks the moment where there's been a a major rupture with Venezuela's uh, democratic process. And just to explain, what happens to the National Assembly, the existing National Assembly, which, as you've mentioned earlier, is opposition controlled? Does that fall by the wayside? It, its powers are now superseded by the the new body elected on Sunday. Um, and one of the things the opposition have said, and many uh, of the uh, regional governments are afraid of, is that one of the first moves that this new body will do is to dissolve the the existing National Assembly, the one that uh, was allowed for in the new constitution, because this new assembly uh, is tasked with drawing up a new constitution. But while it is doing that, it also becomes Venezuela's ultimate um, governing authority, uh, plenipotentiary powers. So that would mean that the National Assembly now is essentially uh, defanged has no authority left and that the new body sits on top of it. Um, so we're still waiting to see when and if the new body moves to dissolve the National Assembly. But um, it, even if it doesn't, the National Assembly is essentially now, uh, according to the government, powerless, doesn't have any authority. And uh, we've seen a lot of uh, street protests, violence in, in Venezuela in recent weeks and months. If the opposition then is really now denied a uh, a constitutional channel to oppose Maduro if they're locked out of the, the new assembly or his supporters might say they lock themselves out, but they're out of the new assembly. He's in power. What's the likely reaction to be? Does it mean that really the only avenue of protest now of opposition that they have is, is on the streets? Well, the opposition have um, called for protests against the the administration to continue. Um, there were there were more demonstrations yesterday. We expect more of them today. 
Um, there is, though, increasingly a sense that there is there's less and less that the opposition can do as long as um, the government remains unwilling to compromise or negotiate. Um, there is a certain amount of hope placed in, in governments in the region. They've been trying, led by Brazil and Argentina, to get the two sides to the negotiating table. But uh, President Maduro has been pretty adamant that any talks have to take place within Venezuela itself. Um, he has said that, you know, that the new assembly was designed for national reconciliation. But the opposition have always um, rejected it because the actual voting system is quite clearly rigged to provide a large uh, Chavista majority in the new body, even though all opinion polls and the last uh, major election in Venezuela showed that the opposition now has overwhelming support amongst the population. So they refused to take part in the election because they said it was designed for them to lose it. And that therefore, if they were to negotiate with the government within that body, that they would be at a huge disadvantage. Uh, the government understands this, and I think that's one of the main reasons why uh, we understand this morning from reports here in Brazil that Nicolas Maduro has refused calls by the regional trade body Mercosur, of which Venezuela is formerly still a member, to take part in negotiations here in Brazil. And that really has led to a kind of an impasse in the region where they do not understand or um, can see a path forward towards a negotiated settlement to the current crisis. And Tom, Maduro, as we know, he succeeded uh, Hugo Chavez as president in 2013. Now, now Chavez was a, he was a very charismatic leader. He used the country's oil revenues to, to fund very popular social programmes, and even though some might question the sustainability of the economic model he pursued, he, he did uh, stay in power for 14 years and, and is still a very popular figure in, in Venezuela, certainly at least among, among, among his own support base, if you like. How does Maduro's standing compare to that of, of Chávez now? Well, amongst a lot of Chavistas and a lot of ex-Chavistas, uh, there is a tendency to say, look, things were great under under Hugo Chavez. And sadly, you know, he was taken from us too soon because of cancer. And then we've got Maduro and he's just no good, uh, whether he's incompetent or he is not revolutionary enough or he's too weak in the hands of various um, advisors. There's all sorts of criticisms made of him. But the reality is that the, the roots of the current crisis are are um, directly traceable back to Hugo Chavez's time in power in Venezuela. And he was very popular, but that's because um, there was a huge inflow of oil revenue into the country. And Chavez spent it liberally and he was um, so... Uh, addicted to spending to fuel this popularity, which is very real. Like, you know, there, there was a, a, a real um, increase in incomes for poor people during the the Chavez years, which were also the oil boom years. There was um, social uh, improvements in health and education and, and whatnot. But the, rea the reality is, is that he was at the time of an oil boom when most major oil producers were building up reserves. Chavez was doubling and tripling and quadrupling the, the country's debt. So the whole thing was absolutely unsustainable. Um, and Venezuela is now the world's most indebted country uh, when you consider debt as a proportion of GDP. Um, and all of this has been exposed by the collapse in the oil price. There was a time when the Chavez government, when oil was around $150 a barrel and was running up debts, even though it was making a huge revenue from 
oil, predicted that oil was going to go to $250 a barrel and that this whole model of, of wild public spending was sustainable. Unfortunately, oil then collapsed and today it's around $50 a barrel. The country is burdened by massive debts. And what Maduro was doing is actually trying to service his foreign debts. He doesn't want to default and he's servicing his foreign debts. And the money to do that has been taken from the spending that went on to uh, social services like health, education and even on food. So while the Maduro regime is servicing its foreign debts, its its principal uh, creditor being China, um, it is using the money that previously funded all these great social programs and they have now gone. So you're seeing an increase in hunger, a huge spike in infant mortality, maternity deaths, um, just an absolute social catastrophe in the country. Uh, Diphtheria has returned, malaria has come back. There are tens of thousands of Venezuelans now fleeing. So many people in Venezuela, particularly poor people, still have very fond memories of Chavez as the man who showered them with great benefits from the oil boom. But in reality, the the model that Chavez put in place was unsustainable. And it just happened to be on Maduro's watch that this was exposed. So in some ways, Maduro is picking up the tab for the extravagance of the of the Chavez years, maybe. But what has that done then to the support base? I mean, has Maduro managed to maintain the, the a strong support base among Chavez's supporters? Or is that... Um, is that now ebbing away? In other words, um, it's, is it, it's, we know Venezuela was divided, you know, before, you know, going back to Chavez's time. But is Maduro's own support from his own base also ebbing away now? And I suppose what follows from that then is, if it is, does he have the, the support that he needs to carry through this programme that, that he's now embarked on? Does he have the support that he needs to carry that through to its conclusion? I don't think he does. Um, and I think that is why the, uh, they had this election on Sunday, um, was because um, really Sunday, I think, when you look at it uh, coldly, does mark the end of Venezuelan democracy. And the reason why Maduro had to go down that route was that he was facing either giving up power because he has lost popular support or intensifying, as, they, as his regime calls it, intensifying the revolution in order to stay in power. And the all opinion polls show that he is deeply unpopular, that um, Chavismo has lost its support amongst the poor levels of society. And, and the clearest indication of that is the, the National Assembly, which now risks being dissolved. Elections for that at the end of 2015 saw the opposition win over two thirds of the seats. Um, and that was a, a relatively free election in a, in a semi-authoritarian environment where the whole state apparatus and state media was used to try and promote uh, the the uh, candidates in that election. And even then, the opposition won two thirds of the seats. And there have been other increasing signs of popular discontent and even just the most basic one. Poor Venezuelans are now fleeing across the border to Brazil and to Colombia, many of them as refugees, others just to go over to buy food. They can't get food anymore in the country. So I think there has been an, a, a very grave erosion of support for the Chavista regime. And I think it is now definitely concentrated just in the public sector workers who um, owe their jobs to the government, the military who have become very wealthy, both through uh, taking over large parts of the state economy. Um, half of Maduro's cabinet are generals. 
and also many military are accused of being involved in organized crime and drug trafficking. Um, and then you have a increasingly smaller, there have been so many defections, but a certain hard left residual support uh, for the Maduro regime. But it is now very much uh, an administration that is only backed by a, a minority of the population. And yet he seems to have made a quite a decisive move um, in the last few days against his opponents by getting this assembly established. So something is going to have to give here, Tom. What do you think it's going to be? Well, when that, that's the, the, the big question that um, I've been asked in in capitals across the region. Um, and, you know, the, some of the signals are not good. Um, Brazil, which it holds the rotating presidency of Mercosur at the moment, um, has been trying, as I was saying, to push negotiations between the two sides. It's called them to Brasilia to hold these talks. Maduro refuses to go. Um, but we understand as well from diplomatic sources uh, reported here in Brazil that the Brazilian government has already held talks uh, with the Maduro administration on how it would be able to protect and evacuate the thousands of Brazilians living in Venezuela should there be a, a social collapse. And um, you can sense from statements by uh, senior government officials uh, from neighboring countries that there is increasingly a fear that if the deadlock is not broken soon and none of them can see how that can be done, that there will be um, a certain um, risk of, of a, a widespread social implosion. The situation is already critical. We're talking about an increase um, and a significant increase in hunger uh, in a country that has the world's biggest oil reserves. It's, uh, it is already a catastrophic situation and people are afraid that it could get worse. Now, President Maduro has said no matter what happens, there will be presidential elections next year when his term is up. Now, he can run for another term under the current circumstances, whether the opposition would be willing to take part in an election, um, given the erosion of all democratic guarantees in the country in the last couple of years is, is uncertain. But there could be a chink that if the country could just get through to next year an election, maybe then Chavismo would look at, uh, under international pressure, regional pressure, holding a somewhat free election that would um, enable some sort of transition to the opposition. But there's no guarantee that, that, the, that the eroding security situation, social situation, political situation in the country is going to let it get that far before there is some sort of collapse. And finally, Tom, you, you mentioned the um, concerns of, among Venezuela's neighbours um, in its own region. Um, what about the United States? It, it announced uh, new sanctions um, in the last couple of days against Maduro personally. Do you think the US has any use, useful role to play here in helping to alleviate this crisis? To be honest, I don't, um, because uh, if the US is at the forefront of um, placing international pressure on Caracas, that is only going to rally some elements in the region, other governments, to uh, the Maduro administration. It's going to maybe consolidate a certain level of support for him within the country because it will in somehow justify Maduro's claim that all the problems in the country are part of a, a vast international right-wing conspiracy run by Washington against uh, the, the, the Chavista administration. Um, so 
you know, the U.S., of course, uh, is going to criticize what's going on. The EU has uh, the, all the most of the governments in the region have. Um, but I don't think that the U.S. is really the best player to take a lead on on pressuring Venezuela. And also there's another reality, which is I don't think the U.S. Um, will want to do that uh, the U.S. could pull the plug on Chavez, um, on the sorry, the Chavist administration, almost overnight. Like everyone, and that's been the case for a, a long number of years. Um, Venezuela is completely indebted to China, uh, but it pays off those debts with oil shipments. So the oil, uh, its second biggest customer for oil is China, but it doesn't generate any cash. The biggest customer is the U.S., um, and it uh, sends you know, uh, about $10 billion worth of oil to the U.S. every year. If the U.S. imposed sanctions on that, the Venezuelan government would be very hard pushed to find new markets. It's a very specific sort of heavy and ultra-heavy crude that has refineries in the Gulf Coast specifically designed to refine Venezuelan crude. It would be very hard to get other customers for that sort of product very quickly. Um, but immediately that would, Venezuelan crude represents about 8% of all U.S. imports, it would have a significant impact on the price of gasoline at U.S. petrol stations. And I don't think the government is willing to do that. Um, so, you know, the U.S. has always been to the forefront of criticizing what goes on in Venezuela, but has remained all that time the biggest customer for uh, the oil that has funded the disastrous Chavista experiment. Because I, I know some supporters of the uh, Maduro regime, um, both in Venezuela and elsewhere, see the US's hand in all of this and in, tr- in trying to bring down the regime. But do you think, well, the evidence is, uh, the evidence doesn't support that, does it? Look, the US um, has interfered in Latin American governments going back to uh, the beginning of the 19th century. That is is not in, in doubt. The US uh, is in a certain respect culpable for um, the radicalizing of um, the Chavista experiment in Venezuela. It, it's almost inconceivable now, but when Chavez was elected first as president in 1998, he kind of positioned himself as a third way candidate, a bit of Tony Blair, a bit of Bill Clinton. Um, and in his initial years in power, he had a quite an ambitious reform program, but I wouldn't really call it a radical one. But even that was met with with um, really uh, aggressive resistance by the elite in Venezuela. And they mounted a disastrous coup in 2002. And there's plenty of indications that Washington knew that this coup was coming and kind of uh, nodded, let's say, or winked about it um, and let it go through. The coup only lasted two days. And really, after that, you you had an intensification of the Chavista experiment. And that coup in 2002 has always um, provided a certain amount of justification in the mind of Chavistas that all their problems are the result of U.S. interference. But I think really, um, partly because the U.S. has been so distracted by its wars in the Middle East, um, partly because it realizes that there's not a lot it can do to bring about a positive um, result for Venezuela. It has kind of criticized from a distance, but is not really directly interfering anymore in the affairs of, of um, Venezuela. OK, well, Tom, it's a very volatile situation and we can only hope that it does resolve itself to the benefit of the Venezuelan people sooner rather than later. Thanks for that analysis. 
Venezuela is not the only country to find itself on the receiving end of US sanctions in recent days. Last week, the Houses of Congress passed legislation tightening sanctions on Russia for its involvement in the Ukraine conflict and alleged meddling in the US election last year. US President Donald Trump, who favours warmer ties with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin, agreed to sign the bill. Isabel Gorst in Moscow is on the line now to tell us how this story is viewed in Russia. Uh, Isabel, when Barack Obama imposed sanctions on Russia in December over its alleged interference in last year's presidential election, Vladimir Putin responded by inviting the children of US diplomats to the Kremlin for a New Year's party. Uh, this time he has reacted by announcing the expulsion of 755 US embassy and consular staff from Russia. Why the very different responses? Well, I think Putin, of course, it was quite un- showing quite unusual restraint when he just didn't react to the sanctions in December. He's now saying that his patience has run out um, and, and Russia just has to react to the American sanctions um, and a series of insults that the Americans have been delivering Russia. And they also are saying that America has taken illegal action and breaking trade laws in imposing these extra economic sanctions. So they're sort of presenting it as, oh, well, we've been very kind to you. We've given you a break, but you just haven't responded. I'm afraid we've got to get tough now. Our patience has run out. And uh, the latest sanctions, they target the Russian energy, financial, rail, shipping, metal sectors. Would they have a, be viewed as having potentially a major impact on Russia? I think it's it doesn't have an immediate disastrous effect on Russia, but it certainly makes Russia's economic position much more difficult than it is already. They can't, they're not going to borrow at all easily from global financial markets, and they can't get American investment or probably European investment in energy projects, which are critical to the Russian economy. I think, just to sum up, I think what these sanctions mean for Russia is that the economy is hardly growing at all, and with these sanctions, it just won't have a chance of moving into a into a path of faster growth that it really needs very badly to develop. Do these kind of sanctions, Isabel, when they do have an impact on the Russian economy, do they have the effect of weakening Vladimir Putin um, in the eyes of the of the Russian electorate, or do they actually strengthen his position at home? I don't think so far we don't see any any sort of downward shift in Putin's very high popularity ratings in Russia. I think that there's quite a lot of propaganda saying that sanctions will only make us stronger. And the sanctions, of course, have had some beneficial effects for the Russian economy. For instance, they started to boost their own agriculture industry and develop their own capacity, which they should be doing anyway. Um, looking ahead, if you have long-term deepening poverty, I mean, people are getting, living standards are falling in Russia. Perhaps they could start rethinking their admiration for Putin, thinking, why, why couldn't you make it up with America? But so far... There's no sign of that or no open sign of that. Okay, And uh, since Donald Trump was elected president, we have seen some indications of warmer relations and increased cooperation between Russia and the US in some areas, for example, in Syria, where they've been they've been cooperating on the creation of a a de-escalation zone in in the south of that country. Are these um, other areas of cooperation affected by these sanctions imposed in, in the last few days? Not so far. Russia's made it very clear they want to go on cooperating in the few areas they do cooperate, like Syria and space exploration and um, the fight against terrorism. I think it's going to be more difficult to cooperate. There's going to be much less embassy staff to talk to for a start. Um, and I, I think that we're, we've certainly taken another big dip in relations between the two countries this week. There's no doubt about that.
And now the election of uh, Trump, which I mentioned a moment ago, um, it, there there was um, a lot of hope, I think, in Russia that, that Trump's election would bring about an improvement in relations between Russia and the US. How do people view that prospect now? Are they losing faith in Donald Trump as a result of his decision to sign um, this latest sanctions bill? I think there was a, a lot of hope and now there's a lot of disappointment because I think any hope of a sort of bromance is now finally over between Trump and Putin, at least for the time being. And I, well, of course, Russian officials are saying, blaming it on the Americans, as you might expect, and just saying that it's, it's a, the America, Trump is hostage to Russia phobes in Washington and that he's probably a weak president, his hands are tied, he can't make up with Putin even if he would like to. Isabel in, in Moscow, thanks very much for that analysis. Thank you, Chris. Nice to talk to you. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.